This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Jonathan Stein, and he is the founder of essentially the very first of the robo-advisors to come out uh, and enter the world. Uh, Betterment is the name of the company. They manage almost $20 billion, uh, quite a substantial sum of money. And you will find that Jonathan is, or better known as John, is a um, enthusiastic uh, advocate on behalf of investors. Uh, he does not like the way much of Wall Street does business, the way fees are hidden, the way people are not fiduciaries uh, to their clients. And he is looking at Betterment as a way to uh, change the institution of money management. If you are at all interested in the use of technology to manage both investments and cash and everything else, uh, how things are done right and wrong uh, in the industry, and also hear some inside dirt about what he thinks about some of his competitors, well, you're going to find this conversation fascinating. So with no further ado, my interview of John Stein. My special guest today is Jonathan Stein. He is the founder and CEO of Betterment, which is a algorithmic asset allocation, uh, also known by some people as a robo-advisor. He graduated from Harvard, got his MBA from Columbia. Betterment currently has about $20 billion in assets. Uh, they have a digital advisory platform for advisors, known as Betterment for Advisors, as well as a 401k option. Jonathan Stein, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. So nice to be here. Uh, it's nice to have you. So before we start, I have to do a, a quick disclosure. Uh, I mentioned in the intro that you have a B2B product offering called Betterment for Advisors. My firm, Ritholtz Wealth Management, is a user of Betterment for Advisors. Our robo-advisor called Liftoff is powered by your back end. So we like to engage in full disclosure around here, and, and I wanted to get that out. So let's start with uh, your undergraduate. You went to Harvard. What did you study there? Did you have any plans on going into finance? Yeah. By the way, I'm so excited to be working with you and Liftoff. I think that's really a, a great thing where uh, you and, and Josh and the whole team have been wonderful to work with, and we're, we're excited to be onboarding clients and all of that. We're so. a fun group. Yeah, you guys are. You we guys are. are great. We really are. Yeah, in college, I studied economics was my major, and I studied a lot of psychology on the side. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in the union or the intersection between those two fields. My my economics professor freshman year was Marty Feldstein, who was one of Reagan's economic advisors. Right. He was super efficient markets, and you know, if we're all just rational and, and we have the right incentives in place, people will obviously do the right thing, and so uh, and the world would be better. And and then I love the fantasy world of economists professors, it's, right? It's an amazing world it's to live in, right? It's like, you know, it's, if a, it's a beautiful place, right? right. No Where bubbles, no crashes. Everybody's perfectly every, Everything is priced efficiently and correctly, and all information is... But on the behavioral side, I was so fascinated with how people actually work, which is not at all like the economic models would predict. We're crazy irrational. We Messy, do the wrong yeah. thing all the time. And I really wanted to reconcile that. You know, there's like Descartian sort of duality in, in, in our lives of like, 
if I know the right thing to do, but I never end up doing it because I'm driven by short term impulses. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to do something there. Coming out of college, no one was recruiting for people who just wanted to help people make better decisions. But that's what I wanted to do. So so coming out of college, what was your first job? Where did you go post Harvard? I went to a company called First Manhattan Consulting Group. Okay. Uh, now again, another disclosure. Years ago, we sublet space from them. Is that right? And, I didn't and even your know legend that. had small, preceded you. Small world, because um, over on on Park and Fortieth. Yeah, that's and right. um and Ninety Park Avenue, and and when we were discussing what we did when we were having the conversation, oh, have you ever heard of Betterment? Yes, we have. Oh, <laughs> he incredible. used to work for us. Just that's a hilarious amazing. coincidence. Yeah, it was a great firm. So many smart people. Uh, you know, I'm still still friends with a bunch of people there. And I got from that vantage point to work with big banking clients mm-hmm. all around the US and around the world, brokers as well, and got to understand how the big financial institutions work and uh, how they're very well-intentioned, but oftentimes haven't innovated around the customer. Mm -hmm. And I started to see opportunities to rethink financial services, to really change it. And I just wanted it all to happen, you know? Like, change was too slow. And, and, And by the time I was leaving there, uh, we were moving into the financial crisis years, right, right. of 2008 and on. So so from FMGC, did you go right to Betterman, or was there something in between? I went to business school in between. Ah, okay, so you went this, to Columbia, yep, yep. and then you come out of business school two years later, and what, where'd you go from there? Then I started Betterment right away. So right out of business yep. school. And I knew I wanted to start Betterment going into business school. I had the name, right? And mm-hmm. I started I was talking about it on day one. And I said, we're going to make financial services better. Uh, and some people would say, well, why didn't you just go and do that? And for me, business school was necessary. It was a good spot to test the ideas, to get to work on. I worked with the dean of the business school. as right. my Betterment was like my case study for my final presentation in entrepreneurial finance. So I got a lot of good feedback Plus from a number could, of professors. you could wait out the financial crisis. Exactly. It, was, it actually was a good time to, to not be fundraising. <laughs> so you had the idea. How fully formed was it on your way into business school? And what did you learn that might have had an impact on, on the company that exists today? I learned... A lot about myself uh, and my management style. That my my favorite classes were things like top management process, and you know I I didn't think about myself as having like a leadership style or a management style, but you know in small groups and in sessions like breakout sessions, I learned that like the the types of things that I do, like wanting to hear from like everyone in the room, like you know hearing all that feedback before coming to a decision, like those kinds of things can be effective. And you know, there's not one right way to lead uh, or manage was was a thing that I took away, uh, but you kind of have to lean into your own style. So you participated in one of the tech crunches, uh, I think it was 09, is that right? My familiarity with that comes from the HBO show Silicon Valley. Yeah. What was the experience at TechCrunch like? a pretty like? accurate depiction yeah. of the TechCrunch. Yeah, like strikingly so, as, as with a lot about that show. They, <laughs> well, they it does ring so right. true. That's what makes <laughs> yeah. it so, and it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, so the sort of frenetic last minute things are glitching and nobody really knows who's going to be the breakout star and everybody's sort of looking at over their shoulders. That was your actual experience. It was so intense. It was really? one of the most tense days of my life. I mean, and I, I didn't have kids at that time, right? I uh, I was uh, I wasn't even married, right? And 
I just I was up all night the night before, and I, I I know because I looked back at like my BlackBerry, and I was writing into it every thirty minutes, one a.m., one thirty a.m., two a.m. Some idea of like how I wanted to reframe my presentation. I'd memorized the entire thing, mm-hmm. you know, which you should never do. It was right. a it was a five minute speech, and I knew every word, and it was all exactly memorized. And I was just so nervous about it because it was our coming out party, right? It was like this was it was we actually launched on that day. And to me, that was a big deal. Like I this was our chance to debut, our chance to get customers. And if we did it, we were going to be successful. And if not, no one would ever hear about us again. You know, so (laughs) uh, there was a lot riding on that moment. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the process of raising money and what it was like to be a venture founded startup. What was that like? Some people have described it as exhausting and draining and harrowing, and other people have said, eh, you know, if you have the right idea, money seems to find it. What, what was your experience? I remember saying to my co-founders when we started out, at least we're going to raise some money with this thing, right? Like, it, <laughs> this is a good idea. Like, people want this. We were confident that people would want it, and at least we get there. And maybe a little too confident, right? I, we went into right. TechCrunch thinking, yeah, we'll get some attention and this will be the thing. Everyone gets funded coming out of these things. We talked to a bunch of people there at the actual conference. And honestly, we didn't know what we were asking for. I remember thinking, maybe I want a million dollars. And, you know, frankly, in retrospect, that was way too little money, you know. But at the time, it just seemed like an impossible amount of money. A million dollars. Think of how much it Seems like a lot of money. Yeah. Think of like how long that'll that'll feed us for a good long time. That's almost a really nice car. Yeah. (laughs) Right? (laughs) The frame of reference is kind of crazy. So are you guys done raising capital or is there going to be more capital raises in the future? We were lucky in that first, you know, in those first conversations to meet Bessemer, who led mm-hmm. our Series A, and they've been great partners for a number of years. Over the years, we've met a number of other firms that have just been awesome to work with, who share our long-term vision, who have deep pockets. Genevic, uh, big, uh, big Swedish firm, is the most recent one. Mm-hmm. Uh, great, like long-term family office-style investor, and all of these firms uh, have given us enough capital where we don't have to worry about raising money again. We have That's great. A, a, you know, we we are. Our ambitions are to be a public company. Uh, right. And that's the so you have on. to be watching this IPO market and saying, what's going on over You here? bet. You bet. My friend, Nir Kasser, who writes for Bloomberg Opinion, said um, Uber basically waited too long to come public. You know, you need to go public sooner. There has to be some upside left on the table. And this could dog them for a good couple of years. Are you paying attention to this IPO market? I think it's really interesting to see that gap between the private markets and the public markets. And however, you know, frankly, I don't think anyone should be that surprised by the the Uber story. I mean, valuation alone. Valuation wise, we were all saying like three years ago, I was saying $60 billion valuation, like that's pretty high. I think someone said anybody who's in a private investor into Uber over the past four years is underwater uh, as of May 2019, which is pretty Pretty astonishing. All right, so let's pivot from the capital structure side to the business side. I know you guys are um, mathy and you look at a lot of data. Have you figured out what it, the cost of acquiring a new client is like? And how do you deal with that in terms of marketing and just looking for new business? So a lot of financial services firms are effectively marketing engines, right? Like mm-hmm. They have a product that they make and then two-thirds of the company is there pushing that right. market, uh, pushing that product into market. 
We are not built that way. Most of our team is R&D. We're building, we're building technology, right? And of course, we have an amazing programmatic marketing team uh, helping us understand our funnel, helping us make sure that if you visited the site, you're getting the content that you want. We might retarget you and bring you back. Uh, and we do some uh, sponsorships and podcasts. And uh, we just had Maggie Siff, uh, you know, from from Billions and, uh, mm -hmm. and so on do, do a campaign for us. So we've done a good bit of marketing to raise awareness and drive that top of the funnel uh, awareness to, to betterment. By and large, we're so efficient. We, we keep becoming more and more efficient. Every year we acquire more customers and spend less doing it. Per customer. Less per customer. Hmm. Uh, so that's been great. So there are a number of different companies that do what you do. How do you differentiate yourself from the competition? Having competition is a blessing. I uh, I know if you you know go to some like monopolist, they might disagree, right? They might say that it's it's great to be alone. Uh, but for us, I don't. You know, we started this category, right? This, right. this smart money manager thing didn't exist before, and we said. On stage at TechCrunch at that launch, I was asked, hey, how are you going to deal with competition? Do you think other people will do this? And I said, if we're successful, we're going to have lots of competition. So so let's talk about some of the giant names that have are late to the space. Hmm. Schwab rolled out their version. Hmm. Um, it's a little bit of an odd portfolio because they make their money on the banking side. There's a big, I think it's like 10% or 8% is cash, and that's mm -hmm. the really, there is nothing free. So the cash is what covers the cost of it. And then there's Vanguard, which I believe crossed $100 billion in their robo. They're, they're just immense. Any concerns? Is that a different audience, a different demographic? How do you deal with those two giant firms breathing down your neck? So they're not taking customers from us. It's important to know that we're getting customers from them and we're getting customers organically from, from other firms and mm -hmm. people who are sometimes new to saving and investing. But no one's going, I'm leaving Betterment because honestly, we just have a better product than these other firms. We're mm -hmm. doing more for our customers. We've uh, run an analysis recently that shows that if you sum up all of the investment management, tax management, uh, portfolio diversification, et cetera, that we do for you and compare it to what you would get uh, through doing it yourself, uh, even net of our fees, we're earning people 44% more in retirement than they could get on their own. And that's the value of great advice and management. So I'm very bullish on advice. And these, are, these incumbent firms are not primarily advisors, right? They're trying to pivot to become that. They're talking a lot about it, but it's not their DNA, right? Vanguard, a wonderful firm. I have incredible respect for Jack Bogle. He's, we, we wouldn't be here without him. Mm -hmm. However, that firm today is just a mutual fund sales machine. They just want to push their, their, their mutual funds. And there's an old kind of you know, uh, orthodoxy that says, as long as you're diversified and have low cost, that's the best thing you can do. And like we do that the best, and that's it. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not good enough anymore. The world has changed. Technology has changed. And you really need an advisor to make the most of your money today because smart money management is here and it's not going away. Um, I can say the same about Schwab. I mean, these guys did a lot to innovate. I mean, uh, Chuck, you know, like was one of the very Talk few people Chuck. That was everywhere. who said, 
we're going to take commissions down, not up. That was great in the 1970s when they did it. They've continued to drive that that trading price down. Now there's folks out there like Robinhood or whatever where you can trade for absolutely free. Does that mean that's what people should do or that's a good thing? No, <laughs> absolutely it's not a good thing. Uh, and I don't think that they're encouraging good behaviors over there at Schwab. They want you to keep a lot of money in cash, and they're robbing you with that. They're just taking your money. They're just taking it away from you. And I think that needs to be exposed, and they should be held to account for that behavior. Wow. Those are those are strong words. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, what Vanguard has called Advisors Alpha, and you have discussed uh, in detail. Uh, tax loss harvesting is one thing that the computer does much faster than sending an accountant with a green eye shade to go through every transaction you've had. How much can the average portfolio garner in in some tax loss uh, harvesting? When we sum across all of our features, like smart rebalancing, which figures out when you have a dividend paid, where to put that so you don't actually trigger a taxable event, or um, our uh, lot sorting, which instead of just doing FIFO or LIFO, like most first in, you know, first in, first, first in, out, last in, first out, which are kind of common algorithms, we will actually choose the right lot to sell or buy at, at any mm-hmm. specific moment. And my favorite, which is tax coordination, that looks at your Roth IRA, your traditional IRA, your 401k accounts, et cetera, and puts the right assets into the right ones to shield your dividends, to shield things that might have long-term appreciation. You sum across those features, and mm-hmm. we're earning our average customer net of our fees after our fee 1.61% per year of alpha it's that, an incredible that number that seems like a lot that's a it's big wild. that's a big number right it's like it's like it, it's it's incredible it's incredible right. it's, but we have uh, we've run amazing you know scenario analysis on this and it's not like you know I'll, i can show you the picture it's not like in 100% of outcomes you're guaranteed to be better off there's nothing like right. that in, in in investing however in the average case you're 1.61 per year better off with our algorithms than without them. So what does that mean in terms of returns? It's 1.61% better, but that's not, that's as a percentage of the total pie, how much does that show up in actual returns over, over time? Well, that is, that is the net return to a customer. That's after our fees. That's after all taxes. Uh, so if so- the market gives you 10% theoretically- Someone who's just invested in equities should see eleven six one exactly, and it's not that linear, right? It's not one point six one percent per right. year guaranteed. But if you compound that, uh, you know, and we've run a bunch of you know scenario analyses and things, and if you compound it over thirty years investing for retirement, mm-hmm. that's how you end up with forty four percent more cash in the end. Let's talk a few moments about this business. There's been some pushback into the concept of automated advice giving. What do you say to people who say, this is just a temporary technology fad and people need live advisors? Being able to do this with just software isn't going to get it done. I believe live advisors provide a tremendous value to their clients. Sometimes advisors, we have a, a, a product for advisors. It's Betterment for Advisors, as, as you know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes advisors come to us and say, what's to keep my clients from just leaving me and going straight to Betterment? And they might worry about that. And we say, well, you number are. one, what's <laughs> to stop them from doing that today? Right. Why are they with you? And they say, well, because I tell them, I give them a full financial plan. I'm talking to them about all their needs. I, I sue their fears. I'm there when the market's bad to, to talk to them. And we say, exactly. 
And that is a service that they value very highly and are happy to pay for because you're giving them a lot of value. So that kind of uh, that relationship, all of that advice that advisors are giving is still very valuable. What we can do is we're the smart money manager, right? So we'll, we'll automate like the right kinds of things with your money. We'll help you make more on your money. And, uh, and we, 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 try, we also um, you know, work very hard to make it a convenient experience, right? Our mobile apps, our web apps make all, everything very accessible. So originally you launched as a B2C, as a business to consumer, and there was a pivot to add exactly what you were just describing. Um, you as a business to business being the back end for any form of uh, RIA or investment advisory firm. Um, how did that pivot come about, and how challenging was that transition? Getting to work with advisors was a thing that we knew we wanted to do for a while. It just it wasn't top priority. We had to get you know we had to build uh, IRAs, for instance. We had to build a mobile app back in 2012 when we were just just getting our, our feet under us, and uh, it took some partners coming to us and and saying, hey, we really want to do this. We'll invest with you uh, if you'll if you'll help make this a reality for us. Uh, Steve Lockshin was one of those early uh, mm-hmm. early partners. Uh, and uh, and working with them, we had an instant client, right? So we had someone that we were building for. And that was uh, with which firm? So that was with advice period at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, and uh, and we've grown from there. We now work with thousands of advisors all across the country. Quite, quite intriguing. Now, some of your competitors have tried some interesting variations. Um, one of them rolled out a risk parity fund, sort of, well, maybe we're not indexers. Maybe we can beat the market. Didn't seem to work out too well. Uh, if you're a Bridgewater or an AQR, hey, that's one thing. But Wealthfront had some problems with this. I know a few other companies had looked at it. Uh, what do you think of this idea of um, people still being enthusiastic for trying to beat the market? Everyone wants to beat the market. <laughs> you do, I do. And if we could do it, well, like, you know, that'd be amazing. Uh, the reason that uh, Vanguard has the big business that they do is a lot of people came around to believe that it's really hard to beat the market net of fees, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the old technology of having, you know, somebody who was just picking stocks for you uh, was probably not the most efficient way to, to deploy your assets. Now today, that idea of just pure indexing is, you know, it's a little bit boring and, and maybe it's no longer the cutting edge. So people are trying alternative indexes. And mm-hmm. to me, it's very hard to tell the difference between active and passive anymore because there's so many different types of passive out there. Well, we've, and is an algorithm active or passive, right? Is it, you know, if you, an index is an active choice, right? Like which index are we going to track? What gets added and what's, and what's not? Do we put in companies that don't have, uh, you know, equal, equal share voting, things like this. Uh, and so, I think uh, those lines are going to continue to be blurred, but ultimately what, what drives performance is low fees, optimizing for the things you can control, and not worrying about the things that you can't control. The things you can, can control include your own behavior, mm-hmm. right? So like auto deposit, invest very regularly. Uh, they include taxes, so account for that over time. Um, they include having the right types of accounts set up for things so that you don't need to go and raid your retirement account to meet some short-term expense. Uh, so advice and planning can help with all of these things that you can control and help you make the most of your money. So some people dislike the phrase robo-advisor. What, what's your view on that phrase and what's your preferred terminology? I think robo-advisor is fun. It's, uh, it's a handle. It's been around for, for a bit now and it's how, it's how we're known. 
I use Smart Money Manager mm-hmm. because I think of us like a smart home or a smart car. There's just better technology now that's available, and people should all be using it. Eventually, everyone will be. Uh, there's just there's a lot of inertia in our space. Hmm. Well, you know, the pushback is it, it's not necessarily an advisor, and there's no robots involved. Why are we calling it robo advisors? <laughs> has has been the uh, the pushback. Um, so, so given the technology that we've seen, given how it's deployed, what is the next logical step for this sort of advice? We, we've you've rolled out a four hundred one k department, seems to be fairly um, human intensive. There's so many people along the lines uh, that sales arc has to take forever. What else are you looking at as a possible way to use your technology to make investing more efficient? I'm so bullish on the 401k business. The Betterment for, for Business line has been great. We've been growing that quickly. Uh, and I I just keep trying to lean into that. The more of that we can do, the, the better. Because mm-hmm. all these employers are really concerned about employee wellness and the best benefits to retain the best talent. And that's where we really stand out is having this great client experience, adv- personalized advice for every participant. Nobody else offers that, right? It's a, it's a really great plan. But as I look toward the future, the things that I'm excited about now are around your everyday cash management, right? Um, When I think about um, our mission to begin, going all the way back to the launch, we said we want to help customers do what's best with their money so they can live better. And people took that to mean when we launched investing that we were all about being just a financial advisor and just sort of a wealth manager maybe. So we're sometimes put in that category. Mm-hmm. I've always thought of us as this holistic, smart money manager. And that includes your everyday checking and savings and all of these kinds of So like, wait a you know, second. So, so Schwab has effectively become a bank. Goldman Sachs is a bank. Are you saying Betterment is, is becoming a full- FDIC insured bank is that the plan? I'm not saying that. I'm saying no, no. That- I'm saying that. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to get you to to tell me whether or not that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, you know, in the last last uh, December, we launched Smart Saver, which was our high yield savings account alternative. Mm-hmm. Then we launched Two Way Sweep uh, early this year, uh, and that allowed people to automatically move money back and forth from their checking account. And and your that. sweep is a reasonable fee. You mentioned Schwab. They there was a big Wall Street Journal article. Their sweep is no longer a high paying short term um, fund. It's really a low paying cash account. It's crazy that they were able to get away with that. Uh, it's <laughs> isn't it? I, it's complicated yeah. enough that nobody really understood what they were doing. But it's real money, and in my office, and I'm sure in yours, it meant that anything we custodied at Schwab. There had to be a decision made, hey, for this much money, for more than this many days, it has to come out of cash and go into this bond, short-term bond fund because it's a substantial difference in interest rates. I think people, customers, citizens need to stand up and demand better. I just, I, it, it just frustrates me to no end that these banks and brokers can get away with this kind of behavior because that's where they make most of their money, right? Schwab makes more than 50% of their profits off of your idle cash. If you're a Schwab customer, you don't know how much, you're just giving them money, just giving it away and they are lending it out for mortgages and whatnot and you're getting nothing 
off of that. Well, practically nothing. It's a very low amount. It's a very a couple low of bips, amount. It's nothing. But they're not alone in this, right? You know, Bank of America is doing this. JP Morgan's doing this. This is how they're all making their money. So those retail accounts is where all the money is in banking. Mm-hmm. And I think it's time for a change there. I don't think most people are aware of that because you're taught, oh yeah, just put your money in your checking account, your savings account. That's a safe place to put it. I'll tell you, as a consultant back at First Manhattan Consulting Group, I saw some really bad practices with those checking accounts. Mm-hmm. Crazy amounts of fees charged to people. And, and, the, and the interest is silly low, it, but it's a collective active problem where, collect, collective action problem, I mean, where, uh, you know, basically you're only losing a few hundred dollars a year. You don't care that much. You have to band together. We all have to demand better. And th- that cash management to me is a super exciting spot for us where I think we can make a real impact on all of Americans' lives. So let's talk a little bit about the different model portfolios that you guys run. They're mostly Vanguard. Last time I looked, all Vanguard, mostly Vanguard. In our core portfolios that we recommend for customers, something mm-hmm. like 70% of, ev- uh, of every dollar uh, would go into one of a couple dozen Vanguard funds. Now, the other 30% is across BlackRock and Schwab funds, and uh, and there's, a, there's others in there as well. What we do is we're independent. We don't make any money off the funds that we offer. Right. Uh, we don't offer any of our own funds, and that makes us virtually unique, by the way, in this in this space. You're a fiduciary uh, to your clients. We're a fiduciary to our clients. So we're, you're not a broker. You're not selling shelf space. You're not getting kickbacks. There's none of that. Right. And and all these all, all these other firms do. Right. Even Vanguard. Right. They're only selling their own funds. Schwab right. has their own funds in their portfolio. So. All of these guys are double dipping, in my view. They're charging you not just for the fund, but also for the advice on top of right. it. We get paid for advice, and that's it. And I think that advice, that simplicity of what we do, is how you know that we're acting in your best interest. So, talking about Vanguard and the fiduciary um, obligation, you wrote a very lovely tribute after Jack Bogle, founder of Vanguard, passed away. Um, tell us about what motivated that. What was your relationship with Jack and and what did he mean to you? Jack, I wouldn't be here without his influence and example. When I was initially thinking about doing something in this space, the examples that inspired me were the investing efficiency of Vanguard and the online simplicity of ING Direct. Now, this was back in 2006 when ING Direct was an independent brand and you know was right. innovating in, in, in web financial services. I, that's now they're part of Capital One, and it's no longer the case. But I was inspired by Jack and when I met him it was just like it was like meeting you know your idol you know I just couldn't mm-hmm. believe it and he talked to me and he he signed my book and he said uh, you know you're going to do a lot of good for a lot of people and I was just so touched by that I was really encouraged and inspired to to move on and over the years we kept in touch I went to his office we we talked a number of times at conferences and this and that I uh, I just I think he was such a good person and he cared about his people, he cared about his customers, that example is, is with me all the time. So, so let's talk about the fiduciary rule, since we're discussing um, caring about your customers, or at least doing what's in their best interest. Uh, we were supposed to have, at least for retirement accounts, uh, a moderated version of the fiduciary rule, and that, in April 2017, got a killed or at least temporarily set back. What are your thoughts about this? And again, full disclosure, you're a fiduciary to your clients. I'm a fiduciary to my clients. So I'm not arguing against this. We're on the same side of of the street with this. 
But there's always a lot of pushback anytime the fiduciary rule comes up. I think this is why we have a collective action problem. There are so these these firms are making so much money off of recommending the wrong thing, off of suggesting that you keep more money in cash, off of suggesting that you should just buy our mutual fund because it's just as good as anything else out there. That is such a profitable thing because it's a way of hiding a fee from you. Now, the thing you might say, why can't regulatory action solve this? Why, why don't they do something about it? Well, it takes a crisis. And in the mortgage crisis, we had that moment. We had you know, people on TV who had lost everything because they'd gotten a mortgage that they didn't understand. And so we regulated mortgages. And now, frankly, I just got a mortgage. And so I can pain tell in the you, neck, isn't it? it's still a pain in the neck, but it is pretty clear at least what you're paying and what you're getting. Those right. disclosure forms are good. Right. Now, all we are asking for with the fiduciary rule or with the SEC's best interest rule is to have clarity around disclosure, around what you're paying for and what you're getting. And of course, these financial firms are arguing against that with all of their might because they love burying fees. They love taking advantage of your behavior and hiding fees in places that you won't notice them. Like, oh, this money's just sitting here. We won't pay you any interest on it. Or, oh, you'll only pay us if you overdraft or if you pay late. Because people think, well, I'm smart. I won't pay late and I won't keep very much money in that account. I'll manage this. And the, the, the firms have all your data and they know you won't do those things. You will misbehave. You will accidentally forget something. You won't actively manage it because you don't have infinite time. And so what you need increasingly is an advisor in your corner doing these things for you. You need an advisor. You need a smart money manager. You need the best technology. You need both of those things. So if I recall under the Obama administration when they wrote the white paper about the fiduciary rule, just in retirement accounts, they claimed excess fees were north of $17 billion dollars. A year. That's mm-hmm. a lot of money collectively that should be going towards people's retirements, and it's not. So is this just, is the fiduciary rule just about money? Is that why people are opposing this? That's it. It's that $17 billion that should be going to clients is going to the industry, right? The industry didn't argue with that number. They just said, if this rule goes through, it will impact our profits by $17 billion. Okay. So do you want that money to go to consumers to individuals or do you want it to go to the financial services industry personally i'm all about the consumer i'm super passionate about making things more transparent about giving letting people know what they're getting letting them know what they're paying for and let them make the decision if they want the high priced option you can have it but just we have the transparency uh that's that's fair enough so from your perspective, you, you sit at the nexus of technology and financial services. I won't use the terrible phrase that, that everybody else uses. Um, but looking forward, what does the next 20 years or so in that space look like? What changes should we expect? We think about the self-managing wallet. We think about the self-driving car, right? And mm-hmm. if, if, if you, like me, I, I believe that sometime over the next 20 years, we're going to have self-driving cars, right? I don't know if it's going to be- 20 in, years, probably less than that, It right? could be, right? Uh, and, uh, and eventually, that's just going to become the way that we get around, and everyone's going to be used to it. Right now, it still seems a little bit far-fetched. Well, I look at the self-managing wallet the same way. I can't imagine that you're going to get in a self-driving car to take you to work, and then at the end of the day, you're still going to have to figure out how much to put in your Roth versus your traditional IRA, and did I actually balance my checking account this month? Right. Like, Of course that's going to be managed by you know a smart system. 
And that system exists right now, and it just keeps getting better every day. So it's time to start using it. Do you look at companies like Amazon as potentially coming into the financial services space? I know lots of people have um, posited that thesis, but what else is coming along to disrupt financial services? We see that financial services is a broad space, and certainly Amazon and Apple are interested in the payment side, the sites mm-hmm. closer to commerce, which is their core, right? Right. They would rather earn that 3% interchange than you know have some other third party earn it. For them to get into, say, managing on wealth is a little further afield, mm-hmm. but maybe in between is some of this everyday cash management that I was talking about. Maybe they will play there. Uh, I think certainly... Uh, the uh, the the large incumbents in financial services could use some challengers. Frankly, so could these large uh, these large IT companies use some some mm-hmm. challengers. Uh, I think they're they're in a lot of businesses right now. And um, fortunately, in financial services, we have a pretty good regime of uh, competition being good. Right? There's all kinds of laws around max size of banks and. Uh, competitive pricing to keep it a dynamic competitive market. You see prices continuing to go lower uh, even in your space, or is that, you know, 25 basis points is uh, a pretty reasonable price point? How much lower could that possibly go? If you have a competitive market like financial services, prices will generally follow to uh, to the cost, right? If, mm-hmm. if there's you only get real difference divergence between price and cost when you have more monopolistic uh, areas. Now, I think one of the interesting things that's going on is there is a monopolistic tendency in retail banking right now. So uh, the the banks that control forty percent of retail branches opened eighty percent of accounts over the last five years. If you go back thirty years, the five biggest banks had less than ten percent. Of the total deposits, now it's practically fifty percent. It's amazing how That's much right. how much consolidation there's been in that space, especially after the crisis. So there's less and less competition, and none of those banks, those big ones, those big four or five, are price leaders. None of them are actually giving customers the best deal. The reason they're growing is because technology is becoming a bigger and bigger asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, to these institutions. And those who can afford to invest in it are. And I do worry about the smaller institutions who can't make those kinds of investments. We're empowering investment advisors with the best technology. Who's empowering the banks? I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of like B2B businesses out there. But it's hard to compete with like the, the big consolidated, say, uh, you know, JP Morgan's and Bank of America's. Any of the money center banks are not under the same price competition that smaller companies are? Is that is that the argument? They have uh, different ways that they compete, let's say. Yeah, mm. I, I think that's right. And it's getting harder for, say, uh, small regional retail banks to uh, to raise deposits. That's a spot where I think we want to help them. Uh, so, you know, we're looking broadly at, at the financial services landscape and thinking about how can we make things better for end consumers. I think competition is great in this space. We want to continue to encourage it, and people ought to speak up and, and demand better. We have been speaking with Jonathan Sedine founder and CEO of Betterment. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things robo-advisor related. Uh, You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Bloomberg, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. 
Check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. John, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, I think you guys are in a really interesting space, and I've followed your progress over the years. Although, I- I'm astonished how effective you have been on the the space has been on the venture capital side, because unless and until there's an IPO, exits are becoming fewer and further between. We've seen a lot of people say, well, we don't have to buy. We've seen a few companies get bought, but a number of the latter entrants said, well, we could build this ourselves. Vanguard built it themselves. Schwab built it themselves. Although I know they had a series of small um, related acquisitions. Um, Some of the big first round robos that had achieved some AUM scale got purchased primarily for the AUM. What's What's the exit strategy? Is it IPO or... A big, uh, a big entity down the road. We've always said since we launched that we want this to be an independent public company. If mm-hmm. we're to have the impact we want, that's the route that we have to take. We want to have such a strong relationship with our customers and constantly reinvest in that in in their well-being, which is not what the typical incumbent is trying to do. Right? right? They're great at making money for themselves, not necessarily for their customers. You get any any pushback on that philosophy from? Hey, it's been a decade since your first venture capitalist backed you. I know these guys have a tendency to want to see something eventually. What what's the relationship like and what are they what are they pressing you to do? Our investors have been fantastic. From day one, they've they've known that this is a long-term generational type opportunity. We went into it eyes open. We said, you know, this is not going to be a thing that we quickly flip and sell. We're trying to build an institution here. And if you look at the cycles in this space, it's every 30 or 40 years, you get another generation of companies that grow up. And so in the last major one was back in 70s when uh, Schwab and Vanguard both launched in about 75. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're big companies today. They didn't m- displace the old companies. They didn't put Merrill Lynch out of business. They didn't put Morgan Stanley out of business. Those continue to be companies too. The more recent one, they were sort of like a, a, a mini one uh, when E-Trade and so on launched in the, right. in the early 90s, right? And today, I think we're in a new era. We are in the smart money management era. Right. And we are the leader in that space. Nobody is close to us, right? We have more assets. We have a, a bigger reputation than any other firm. And sure, there's companies saying, hey, we you know, do something about recommending portfolios too. That's nothing new. That's not smart money management. We're the smart money manager, right? Like We're the one that's actually doing all the right things with your money. Quite, quite interesting. All right, so let's jump to our favorite questions. These are what we ask all our guests. They're our speed round. Um, you might be the first person who can't answer the fir- this question. What was the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model? I started driving when I was 15 in Texas, where mm-hmm. I grew up. You can get a hardship license. Right. And my hardship was that both my parents worked, and I lived a long way from school, and there was no bus. So I got to get a license early. I got a Nissan Stance. It was a 1990 red sure. Nissan Stance. It was the nerdiest car uh, that I probably ever could Impressive. have had. <laughs> um, so, so you mentioned Jack Bogle as a mentor. Who else were some of your early mentors? 
I got to thank my parents and my grandparents. My family was just such fantastic influences on me. My parents were city planners. They taught me about efficiency and the value of, of good design. And I learned to love uh, business through uh, my, my grandparents who ran a furniture factory in, in upstate New York. And I love their style of just building a community ar- around mm-hmm. that factory. I thought it was so fantastic. Uh, who influenced your approach to investing? Well, aside from Jack Bogle, obviously I, he's front and center. He's, he right? was huge. I learned a lot from the Chicago School. So one of my professors uh, at Harvard in undergrad was worked with uh, the Chicago guys. He worked with Dick Thaler, and so I learned about Richard Thaler. I learned about Fama and French, and now you know we've partnered with Dimensional Fund Advisors (DFA), mm-hmm. uh, and it's almost coming full circle back to to that relationship, right? I always thought that like Fama and French and Thaler were onto something, and Fama and French are big advisors to DFA and have Correct. been pretty much from from the beginning. So everybody's uh, favorite question: Tell us uh, about some of your favorite books. I love Sapiens, a uh, big fan of that, but probably my favorite is Dan Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm-hmm. It is a tome, right? It is a, you know, a thick one and but it's a page turner too. It's the such a first three read. quarters of that, you just really blow right Fly through. through it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Yep, yeah, absolutely. It's how we think, it's how we work. And it's that you I talked about that union of like rational and irrational. He explains it, right? He gets it. Mm-hmm. So and, and got a Nobel for yes. getting it. Uh, any other books you want to mention or just leave it with those two? I'll leave it there. Uh, what do you do for fun? What do you do out of the office? All of my time outside of work these days is occupied by my family. I've got a three-year-old and a mm-hmm. four-year-old, uh, two daughters, and I just love spending time with them. It's such a precious age right now. I, I can't do anything else. What are you most excited about in the financial services industry uh, today? I think this idea of what happens with everyday money management is hugely exciting. I know I keep coming back to it, Mm -hmm. but it's ripe for change. And integrating that with this long-term financial plan is the realization of our mission. It's a thing we've been talking about for years, but we can't really help you with your long-term goals unless we help you with how do you save more today. Uh, What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad or a millennial who came to you and said, I'm interested in a career in fintech. How would you how would you advise them? I think having real passion is important. We always look for passion. Obviously, like you, you got to have horsepower. That's like you, you got to work hard and get things done. Uh, but showing like something that you have real passion about is important. The other thing is openness. Can you listen? Can you you know if somebody's uh, got all the ideas and not listening to others, that, that's not really a recipe for success. And our final question: What is it that you know about the world of investing, technology? Uh, anything else related today that you wish you knew uh, 10 plus years ago when you were first starting? Well, back when I was a student, I was learning all this stuff about how to invest and to that I was just as dumb as the next person. And of course, then I went out and started managing my own money and I bought Enron on the way down. You know, I made some of the same dumb mistakes that I'd read about. And I wish I hadn't done that and I wish, you know, I'd, I'd learned my, my lesson. We're all just as, 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 as dumb as the next person in the end. I certainly am anyway. <laughs> quite, quite interesting. We have been speaking with Jonathan Stein, founder and CEO of Betterment. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, where you can see any of the previous, let's call it 243 such conversations that have taken place over the past five years. Uh, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. 
write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, give us a review on Apple iTunes. Lastly, I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this conversation together. Each week, Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Medina Parwana is our producer slash audio engineer. Uh, Taylor Riggs is our booker producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.